If you have your Bibles, if you're with us, take them and turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 35. In our small group, you know, we meet at 915 on Sunday mornings. We always start off with sharing our high of the week, our low of the week, and then we answer some sort of fun get-to-know-you question. And most of them, for some reason, end up dealing with food, um, such as, what's your favorite kind of sandwich? And besides the debate on whether or not a hamburger counts as a sandwich, um, which it does, by the way, a hamburger is definitely a sandwich. There's a lot of interesting responses. Mine, if you want to know, is a meatloaf sandwich on Wednesdays at the soup kitchen, specifically on sourdough with the, the peppers and then a side of the snow crab soup. Of the soup kitchen, you ever heard that? And you dip it in there, it's amazing. Take me out to lunch on Wednesdays and go there. Uh, but I should have said that my favorite sandwich was the Markin sandwich. You, if you got our bulletin, you might have noticed a very odd and peculiar sermon outline and, and points. Um, a Markin sandwich is a literary technique that Mark uses in his gospel. You know, a sandwich is two pieces of bread with m- at least, you know, or, or I guess meat in the middle, right? That's what a sandwich is. And that's why a hamburger is a sandwich, right? It's two pieces of bread with, with a piece of meat in the middle. Now, a Markin sandwich, if you read through Mark a lot, you, you've probably ran into this. You might not know that's a term. That's what some people talk about, is where there are, there's a story that starts... And then he interrupts it with a different story, and then he comes back with the same story again. Does that make sense? So there's two slices of bread, which is one story put together, and another story in the put there sandwiched in the middle. Okay, so he'll start a story, interrupt it with a different story, and then come back to the original story. And the point of this literary technique is that you're supposed to take these two stories together. They're supposed to be read together and have this unified point. Mark... Um, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this way, but also we can think of Mark as a literary genius for putting together. He, he arranged this intentionally. It's pretty cool to study. And so what we'll see, um, I have three points this morning. Slice one, the meat, and slice two. Okay, slice one, the first slice of bread is verses 20 through 21. Right there is the first piece of bread. And then we have the meat in verses 22 through 30. And then slice two of the bread in verses 31 through 35. The Markin sandwich. You just, you just learned something today about biblical studies. Let's read the whole passage. This is God's word for us this morning. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, 
and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. That ends God's word for us this morning. Let's go to him and ask for him to bless it. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words and we believe that they are inerrant, completely true, infallible, sufficient for us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to help us understand your word. Apply it to our hearts. God, help us see the the structure, help us see the doctrine, help us see the application, help us see the characters, some good examples, some bad examples. Ultimately, I pray that you can help us see Christ in this passage and see Him clearly. I pray that you can help us glorify and enjoy Jesus in the Scriptures this morning as we study them. God, I pray for every single person here. God, I pray for the, for the believer who's seeking to follow after you. God, I pray that, that they can learn more about your word hear from you through your word. I pray that there can be life transformation, repentance, belief, encouragement. God, I pray for someone here who's far from you this morning as we talk about these weighty, eternal matters. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can use even this passage to draw them to yourself, to reveal to them their sin, to reveal to them their need for you. God, I pray that this can be a day of salvation. God, I pray that we all can encounter you through your word this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Slice 1, verses 20 through 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Jesus goes home. The crowd's so large in the house that they can't even eat. This is when it gets serious, right? I mean, you can't even eat. The crowd has gone so far that you can't have supper. Not just that people can't get in. We've seen that before. That's okay. But, I mean, there are so many people here that they can't even eat. Notice it says the family hears about it in verse 21. I don't know if, if mom was just worried that her son wasn't eating. Right? That happens sometimes. He's not even getting to eat. No. But they hear they, they've heard about the celebrity of Jesus Christ. They've heard about him calling men to be his apostles. They've heard about the death threats, about how the religious elites are planning to destroy Jesus, as we see in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. And they've heard enough. So they come to the house. And look what they come to the house to do in verse 21. They come to the house to seize him, to capture him, to take him away. For they're saying, he is out of his mind. If you're a skeptic in this room, if you, if you come here today not really believing in the truthfulness of the scriptures, I want to suggest to you that Mark, including this story in the gospel, shows its truthfulness. I mean, this is a pretty embarrassing story if you think about it. Mark is writing 
so that people will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and dedicate their lives to being his disciples. So he includes this story about his family thinking he's insane. The only reason why you would include that in a story about, hey, dedicate your life to this person was if it really happened. So to sum up this first slice, Jesus' family thinks that Jesus has gone insane. And they've come to forcefully remove him from his ministry and mission. Wow. Now we come to the meat. Enter the scribes. They are the biblical experts. They know the Bible really well. They're the lawyers of the day. And notice here in verse 22, they're not local. The scribes, they come down from Jerusalem. It seems as if these were sent... These scribes were sent by the religious elite in Jerusalem. And they were sent to kind of see, to investigate Jesus' ministry and see what was going on. So these scribes were sent as like these, um, these spies, these delegates from Jerusalem. They're going to check and see what's going on. And what's their conclusion on the matter after they've checked out Jesus and seen what he's all about? Look at verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He cast out demons. Those two phrases there are just synonyms for Satan. So, Jesus' family thinks that he is crazy, and the people who know the Bible best think that Jesus is possessed. What a fantastic day for Jesus, right? I mean, think about this opposition. Think about the accusation. He's out of his mind. He's possessed by Satan. That's what's being thrown at Jesus in this passage. How is Jesus going to respond to these serious accusations? First, he calls them, verse 23, two of them, and asks the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? So the scribes are making the accusation that Jesus is using the power of Satan to cast out demons. So Jesus makes the argument here, um, I think in Latin it's reductio ad absurdum, which is you take the argument and you draw it to its logical conclusion and show that that conclusion is absurd. Does that make sense? So Jesus is arguing, if, if that's the case, if I was using Satan's power to cast out Satan, then Satan's kingdom would have no strength at all because it would be so divided. So he's saying that's so, if you take it to its conclusion, what you're arguing, you see it's absurd. That's what he says in verses 24 through 25. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. I just want to point out here, it always bugs me when that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. You ever seen that? It's like Abraham Lincoln says, a house divided against itself. I think Jesus might have said it first by a couple, you know, hundred years at least. Okay, Jesus goes on in verse 25, 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. There's, there's the absurd conclusion of what he's saying. Jesus is saying if, if Satan was going against himself, he would have no power in this world. And the implication is, does anybody believe that's true? Obviously Satan and evil and sin are raging in this world. Is it not? Are they not? 
So he's like, obviously, they're not divided against themselves in some civil war. This is a united, powerful force that's raging. If, if it was what you're saying, Satan would be absolutely no threat at all to us. But that's obviously not true. This is not the main point of the text, but I hope you see the principle from Jesus' argument that division leads to powerlessness. If, if, if Satan's kingdom, is, they're, they're, they're united, and so they're, they're powerful. And he's saying if, if they were so divided like you're saying, they would accomplish nothing at all, which obviously that's not the case. So we need to remember that as a church. Like, Don't you want to be more united as God's people than, than Satan's kingdom's united? Like, We want to put them to shame in a sense. So Jesus uses a parable. A parable is a fictional story that reveals true principles. In verse 27, it says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus makes it clear in this parable that instead of being possessed by Satan and Satan's ally, he's actually Satan's enemy. Jesus is the enemy of Satan. He is going into the strong man's house, which is Satan, and binding him up so that he could plunder his house. In other words, if you're going to go break, if you want to go steal something from Arnold Schwarzenegger, you got to tie him up first before you start stealing his stuff. It doesn't make a lot of sense to go in there and, and take his stuff while he's free. So Jesus makes this parable that he's plundering the house of Satan. And Jesus is referencing all the people that are under the thumb of Satan himself, possessed by demons, filled with sin, oppressed by the brokenness of this world. And so every example, so far we see in the Gospels, every single one you read of Jesus um, doing an exorcism or freeing people of sin, is not an example of Satan's strength. No, it's a sign that Jesus is stealing from Satan. He's plundering his house. He's redeeming people and freeing them from the kingdom of darkness. That's what's happening in every work of Jesus. Not Jesus helping out Satan or, or something like that. No, he's going head to head with Satan, toe to toe with Satan and defeating him. It reminds me of Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what's happening in Jesus' ministry. He's plundering the house of Satan. Jesus isn't supporting Satan's kingdom. He is destroying Satan's kingdom. So Jesus completely destroys the scribe's argument here, does he not? I mean, it's illogical. Because he took it to its absurd conclusion and revealed what that would be. And it doesn't correspond with reality. He's saying, if what you're saying is true, then Satan would be useless. And also, do you see what I'm doing? I'm actually plundering Satan's house. I'm freeing people from demonic oppression, from, from the brokenness of sin. But he's going to be very clear. These accusations aren't just wrong. These accusations are dangerous. They're playing with fire, if you will. That's what we see in verses 26 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. First, I want to point out in this passage, the good news. Do you see the good news in that passage we just read? I don't want you just to, I know what your mind's probably going to. You want to jump to the, to the, to the spicy part, right? To the scary part. And you might have questions about the scary part. But when you look at verse 26, 
And don't miss, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. How sweet is that news? The good news that all sins, I'm talking all your lust, all your blasphemy, all your pride and your anger and your jealousy and your dishonoring your parents and your idolatry and your careless words, all of them can be forgiven in Christ. That's what verse 26 says. All sins will be forgiven. The children of man. And they can be forgiven because what Jesus Christ is going to do where he paid the price of them on the cross, where he died in our place for our sins, so that we could be free from sin. Is that not good news this morning? I mean, see the power of the one who is plundering Satan's kingdom and believe upon him, and your sins, all of them, will be forgiven. We read it this week in Acts 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. You can be freed today of your sins. You can be forgiven of every single one of them. Christian, are you rejoicing with all your heart at that? I want to challenge you to rejoice in this truth with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Holy Spirit, even right now, reveal to us the thrilling, unspeakable reality that we've received the forgiveness of sins for all of our sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Imagine with me this morning if right after church you got a call saying that you just won a million dollars and how you jump for joy. You probably would too. But if we all had a true vision of reality you would understand a million dollars in this life with hell to follow is no good news at all no good news at all so this gospel offer of forgiveness of sins is the best possible news that you can receive this morning and i pray that it leads you to your heart exploding with joy every single thing you've done that's led to guilt and that guilt will lead to condemnation and that condemnation will lead to punishment for all eternity can be Wipe clean with the blood of Jesus Christ this morning. And if you're far from God, this is offered to you today. Did you know that? That Jesus can give you a new heart. He can give you a new life. He can completely forgive you of all sin. Of everything you've ever done. Like there's no sin too serious. No sin too far. No stain too, too deep within you that Jesus can't cleanse. It's really good news. So now let's talk about what probably grabbed your attention when we read the passage. I hope I've shook you a little bit and said, okay, wait, there's good news here too. You can be forgiven. Let's talk about the unforgivable sin. Jesus says all sins will be forgiven, but, 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But is guilty of an eternal sin. Reading this probably scares some of you, and it should scare all of us. This is a dire warning from Jesus that should make us stop and consider what's being said. An eternal sin. Sin that goes on forever, that will never be forgiven, where you will face the punishment and wrath for that sin for all eternity. Forever and ever and ever. We should take that seriously. We shouldn't 
We shouldn't skirt past it. We shouldn't laugh it off. But also I want to suggest that we shouldn't be dominated by fear about it. There's a balance here. I, I don't think we should just skim through it and say, ah, whatever. But we also shouldn't um, be filled with fear over this. Let's talk about it. Because maybe you've been wrecked by this verse. Maybe you've really struggled. I know a lot of people have about whether or not maybe you've accidentally slipped and, and stumbled into committing this unforgivable sin. Maybe you don't even know if you've committed this unforgivable sin. And maybe you're sitting here damned for all eternity and you've got no clue. Right? A lot of people struggle with this. So it's really important to ask, what is the eternal sin? As always, it's really important to look at this in context of the passage. And remember that the scribes, what did the scribes just do? They had just attributed Jesus' work to Satan instead of the Spirit. The scribes were witnessing Jesus' work and called it and him evil. Right? They were so hardened in heart. that They didn't praise Jesus for what he was doing. They blamed Satan for it. So they're seeing paralyzed people walk they're seeing lepers get healed they're seeing sins get forgiven they're they're seeing withered hands getting restored without even doing a thing and what they say is that's demonic he reminds us of isaiah 5 verse 20 woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter in, in the passage, if you see verse 29, which, which, which says what the, what the uh, eternal sin is, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then look at verse 34. You see that 4? Like, he's saying verse 29 because of verse 30. And what does verse 30 say? For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the reason why Jesus... What Jesus is responding to is that accusation. So the eternal sin in context is to be determined in your hard heart that Jesus' work is evil and Jesus himself is demonic. Where that's your settled position. This is the eternal sin that will never be forgiven because you have closed yourself off from the only way to be forgiven, which is belief and faith in Christ. So can we commit this sin today? Absolutely. Absolutely. This isn't something you slip into. It's not something you commit by accident. It's not something that you can be ignorant of and, oh wait, I've, I've done this. No, no, no. But this is something that can happen to you as you get hardened by sin over time. And you get hardened against Jesus over time. Where you dismiss His word, dismiss His word, dismiss His word, and then get antagonistic towards His word. And then you get to this point where you might even say, what Jesus is doing, he, he, He's evil. I mean, some in this room might be on that path right now. But to comfort your hearts... I don't believe this is a sin that you commit by accident. And one helpful piece of advice is, to sum it up, if you're worried about it, if you're pricked in conscience by it, if, if you hear this and you think, oh my, it's probably a sign that you haven't committed it. J.C. Rawls says, 
But we may lay it down as nearly certain that those who are troubled with fears that they have sinned the unpardonable sin are the very people who have not sinned it. The very fact that they are afraid and anxious about it is the strongest possible evidence in their favor. A troubled conscience, an anxiety about salvation, a dread of being cast away, a concern about the next world, and a desire to escape from the wrath of God will probably never be found in the heart of that person who has sinned the sin for which there is no forgiveness. This sin is so anti-Christian. Do you see that? I mean, it's to, it's to be determined that Jesus is demonic and his work is demonic. It's not something that somebody who, who is a follower of Jesus would, would ever slip into. But nevertheless, I, I think we should see this warning and this, this, this strong statement should kind of take our breath away, in a sense. And we should take it very seriously and look at it and, and consider what it is and what it's saying and, and hold fast to Christ day in and day out and thank Him for the forgiveness of sins that we possess. Now we get to slice 2 in verses 31 through 35. Back to the family. You see that we started in family in verses 20 through 21. Now we're back to them after this lengthy discussion about Jesus being possessed by Satan and the unforgivable sin. Let's read it again just to recap. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Mary and Jesus' brothers show up standing outside the house, and they told him to come outside. And inside the house, a crowd is sitting around him, which implies they're, they're listening to him teach, right? That's the typical position. Um, so do you see the clear symbolism in this passage where the family is on the outside of the house and the crowd is on the inside of the house? And that's typically reversed, right? Your family's in the house and the crowd's outside, but it's reversed here. And Jesus' family gives the message to the crowd. You know, the crowd, they can't get to Jesus because the crowd's all there. And the crowd gives Jesus the message. You know, your family's outside. Mom's outside calling. And again, remember in context that his family, when it says seeking you, that kind of sounds nice. Like, oh, they just want to know where you're at. But in the context of, of this Mark and sandwich, we know that they're trying to interrupt and stop Jesus' ministry. They want this to, to stop. They might not be as hardened as the scribes here, but they're getting close, right? They think he's out of his mind. So how is Jesus going to respond to his family calling him to stop his ministry. Hey, come out, be with us. We, we want to take you home, give you a break from all this. And this is a difficult decision for Jesus because as you know, typically, typically we are closest to our family more than anyone in the world. And we're commanded by God to honor our father and mother. I mean, there's a reason why it's a phrase brotherly love, right? Family is this close-knit, it's supposed to be at least this close-knit thing. And so here, Jesus is faced with a decision. Is he going to continue in his ministry, or is he going to listen and go be with his family? But here in this passage, Jesus redefines who his most meaningful relationships are. And he asks the question. I mean, profound question in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looks around at the crowd, and he says, Here are my mother and brothers. 
So Jesus' family comes up trying to hinder his ministry. And instead of valuing his family over his disciples, Jesus values his disciples over his family. And in fact, he redefines his family as the people who were inside the house sitting and listening to his teaching. In a couple of chapters, in Mark chapter 10, we'll get there in a couple months, hopefully, Lord willing. It says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. It's a great promise. A great promise to claim. But what I want to point out is that Jesus doesn't just promise this. He lives it himself. You see that? He calls us to forsake our family and to value him. But here we see Jesus doing the same thing. I'm going to forsake my family and value the kingdom. I'm going to value the kingdom even over my closest relationships. And then he says in verse 35, what a beautiful verse. I know talking about the eternal sin and stuff like that, that's, that's kind of somber and heavy, and it should be the eternal consequences of that. But I want you to look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's a beautiful promise to claim. I want you to consider with me how beautiful the promise of family is. Think about your family. Think about the comfort of finally getting home to be with the people you love and enjoy the most. Think about the people you can trust with your life. Where you don't have to pretend to be someone you're not. You can just be yourself. Think about the love of a mother. And think about the friendship of a sibling. And think about the intimacy and the understanding and the long history. Nothing beats the promise of family. And this is how Jesus feels about those who follow him. You see that? If you do the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You've heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water. Jesus here says the spirit is thicker than blood. And I know for some of you, as I just described that beautiful picture of the family, you might, you might sit there and say, I don't feel that. Right? Like I don't, I don't experience that. I, I've missed out on that. Maybe you have a huge yearning for that. But at the very least, dwell on that desire for family that you don't have and see that you get it in the gospel. See that the promise of family is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Because, hey, family is wonderful. Like, I, I love family, but we all know that families fight. Families break up. Families don't like each other sometimes. Families stop talking to each other. Families don't get along. We get that. That happens in this broken world. So here in the gospel, here in Jesus Christ, we get a better offer than any earthly family. So if you have a good one, say, this is even better. And if you don't have one, if you don't have a good one, say, but it's offered to me in Christ. I'm, I'm invited to the family of God. So how, how can we know that we're Jesus' family? Do you see it in the text? Very clearly. Whoever does the will of God. He is my brother and sister and mother. First of all, what does it mean to do the will of God? I think of John 6, 28-29. That says, Then they said to him, What must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. And then I think I, we just read it in our, in our Bible reading for the offering. And it stood out to me. Where it says, and this is his commandment. 
this is what it means to do the will of God, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. That's 1 John 3.23. So the first thing to do the will of God, if you want to be Jesus' mother, that sounds weird, right? If, if it was just one week later for Mother's Day, this would be perfect, but what can you do? If you want to be Jesus' mother, you do the will of God. What's the will of God? Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Him who died for your sins and was raised to life. But second, it means that whoever believes in Jesus should live for Jesus. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to do the will of God. So you can know Jesus sees you as family if you are seeking to live in obedience to Jesus and seeking to submit every single area of your life to His authority. Now think of John 15, 13-14. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you see that we're not saved by obedience, but that obedience shows our salvation? You don't become Jesus' brother by doing good, but once you are Jesus' brother, you're going to reveal that by doing good and obeying the will of God. New Testament theology has no place for a saved person who lives their whole life outside of the will of God. No, disciples obey. Relatives of Jesus do the will of God. To be a member of Jesus' family means to live Jesus' way. Also, the beautiful thing about verse 35 is that this verse shows us that Jesus doesn't just tolerate us. This isn't one of those situations you might have wondered, does Jesus like me? I know he has to love me because he's God, but does he like me? But here we see that Jesus sees you as his family. You are beloved by Jesus Christ. Consider Hebrews 2.10, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christian, he's talking about you there. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus isn't ashamed to call you his brother. Jesus isn't ashamed to call you his sister. If you do the will of God, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in him, living your life in, under submission to his authority... Jesus delights in you. Christian, whoever does the will of God, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's proud of you, in a sense. Do you see that? You are loved by Christ like you're a sister. Jesus feels affection for you like you're his mother. Jesus views you as family in love. Where do we see the proof of that at? Number one. We see the proof of it in his past death for you. As we just read in John 15, greater love has known than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. How do I know Jesus loves me like a sister? Look at the cross. Greater love has known than this, that he laid down his life for his brothers and sisters. Where else is proof? Number two, we see it in the proof of his present intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you are Jesus' brother or sister or mother this morning in this room, he is currently praying for you. Have you considered that? It wasn't set it and forget it, die on the cross and move on. But no, every single moment he's in the presence of God praying for his brothers and sisters. He shows his love every single moment for you. Number three, we see proof of his love in our future salvation. I think of John 13, 14, sorry, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Do you see the love of Christ? That He wants you to be where He is. So He's died for you. He's praying for you. He's going to bring you to Himself. Why? Because you are His family. You're His brother and His sister and His mother. He feels such a mighty, strong affection for you. So Christian, not only are your sins forgiven in Christ, but through the gospel you have become adopted into the family of God where you receive the most intimate love imaginable. Behold what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. What do we do with that beautiful truth? I think about John 15, 9, As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Pray the Holy Spirit can lead you to enjoy Jesus' love today. In conclusion, in this Mark and Sandwich, we see the classic trilemma about Jesus. I think it was um, first put out by C.S. Lewis, where you only have three options where three options when it comes to Jesus. You either think he's a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You ever heard that those are kind of the three options or approaches of, of Jesus Christ? We see it in the text, right? The scribes claim that Jesus Christ was a liar. They claim that he was an undercover agent for Satan that needed to be stopped. While the family claimed that Jesus was a lunatic, they claimed that he was out of his mind and needed to be saved from himself. But the crowd, however, those inside the house, no, they claimed that Jesus wasn't a liar. Jesus wasn't a lunatic. No, Jesus was Lord. They were disciples who glorified and enjoyed Jesus. And therefore, Jesus claimed them as his family. And to be honest with you, there these are the same three choices for everyone here. Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? This passage of scripture shows us the drastic stakes of this decision. Does it not? On one side we see the eternal sin. On the other side we see the perfect love of Christ. Invited into his family forever. To be wrong about Jesus leads to that eternal sin. But to be right about Jesus and confessing him to be Lord of your life leads to all sins being forgiven and being included in Jesus' family. That's what I want to invite you to today. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Confess him to be Lord of your life. Receive the forgiveness of sins. All of them can be forgiven this morning. Don't turn away from that offer. Let's pray as we respond. Jesus, thank you for this passage. As we see all these options and all these things, I pray that we can enjoy your love this morning. That we can, that we can rest in it. That we can believe it to be true. That we are not just some scoundrel that you've saved because you had to. But Jesus, you, I mean, you see us as your family. Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you. Jesus, I pray you protect us from sin. Keep us close to you. Help us just relish in your love and abide in your love as we read. God, I pray for anybody who's far from you. God, they, they, they might hear a message like this and get even more hardened in their sin. Holy Spirit, I pray that you can soften their hearts. Lead them to you, Christ. God, I pray that you could just give them boldness to talk to somebody before they leave today. God, give them salvation. Let them turn from their sin, Lord. God, when we look at these eternal stakes, I pray that every single person can feel them to see that there's, there's everything to gain and everything to lose. And Jesus, you are what everything hinges on. 
Jesus, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. I pray that we can be a church that loves you, confesses you to be Lord. Pray that you can apply this passage to our hearts in ways that, that's beyond me. And in this time of response, God, I pray that, that you can just deal with our hearts and draw the truth to our minds and, and set it into our hearts, God, and, and let it bear fruit. In your name, Jesus. Amen.